Good morning again. I might yell today. I might not, but it's always good to give me a little headroom just in case. Thank you, thank you. Yeah. Amen. Oh, we are looking forward to getting that, uh, that project up on the West End underway. It's been a minute. The initial water intrusion happened December 2nd, early December. And so we've, we've been planning, working, and now we're finally, finally getting things moving. Um, yes, and as he mentioned, if you have questions regarding membership or life groups or anything... Um, Come find me after the service. I'll be around for a while. There are a few few uh, forms left on the table there, and we'll be printing more if we need more for that. Pull out your Bibles, Acts 25. Acts 25. I don't hear a lot of rustling, so I'm assuming you're on your devices. And if you're reading along as I'm reading, I'm reading in the NASB, although there's plenty of good versions out there. Lord, would you open your word to us today? We come humbly to be taught and instructed, maybe even corrected today. Would you speak directly to our hearts through your word? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The title of today's message is To Live or Die. And at times you may wish for either one of those. But anyways, um, chapter 25, verse 1. Festus then, having arrived in the province three days later, went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the leading men of the Jews brought charges against Paul And they were urging him and requesting a concession against Paul that he might have him brought to Jerusalem at the same time, setting an ambush to kill him on the way. Sound familiar? Yeah, a couple weeks ago. Yeah, it's not, this is not the first time, yeah. Festus then answered that Paul was being kept in custody at Caesarea and that he himself was about to leave shortly. Therefore, he said, let the influential men among you go there with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them prosecute him. After he had spent not more than eight or ten days among them, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought After Paul arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him, which they could not prove. While Paul said in his own defense, I have committed no offense either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? And Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you also very well know. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of those things is true... Which, of which these men accuse me, 
No one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then, when Festus had conferred with his council, he answered, You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you shall go. There is a lot. I love the way that Luke tells the story in this part of Acts. There's a lot going on in here. The last time we had this conversation with with Paul and, and the Jews and the Roman governor, it was Felix. Felix was the guy in charge, not Festus. I know they both start with the F, and so you can confuse them, especially since you're not friends with either one of them. Uh, But the first one was Felix, and this one is Festus. Felix and his legacy, he was was really corrupt. We talked a little bit about that. Um, He was corrupt, and he was inept. He did not do well at leading this region, not even a little bit. All the history uh, recordings agree, Josephus uh, re- recounts the several things that were going wrong and that Felix tried to fix and just failed miserably. He just he made everything worse, is what he did. In spite of his brutality and his viciousness, he was unable to get a handle on the Jewish people. Everything he did made it worse, so much so that the emperor recalled him to Rome. He got in trouble, he got fired. Uh, his life was spared, but he got fired. And Festus is his replacement. Portius Festus. And he comes, and he's not there for three days before he goes up to Jerusalem to to mucky-muck around and do politics and stuff. What was it that was going on in the the political environment, in the world that that Felix kept making worse? Uh, First, there was just an overall discontent with the Jews being subjects of Rome. Now, the Jews have never been good subjects. They have never behaved well under somebody else's rule. They always rebel. They always give trouble. They, just, they have this superiority complex thing, right? And they do. They really do. And, and you know, all the Gentiles are scum and, and all that. And, and so to have a Roman empire or anybody outside besides God himself over them, not okay. And things have been kind of simmering for a while. They're getting upset again. Um, This gave rise to many charlatans and false prophets, and they were leading many people astray and into rebellions. It would look like this. Somebody would come into the temple or around the temple and begin persuading people that God was about to send his Messiah, or worse, I'm the Messiah, follow me, and we're going to go out to the wilderness, we're going to train, we're going to figure out our plan, and then we're going to come back and kick out the Romans. So multiple times this was happening. Somebody would come along, fool a bunch of people, take them out to the wilderness, and then uh, usually they all just died because the Romans would say, no, that's not the plan. You are our subjects. And so it never went well. But it was happening frequently. Lots of people trying to do this. Also, there was the Sakari. Uh, the Sakari was a word that meant originally robbers, but robbers banded together, and then they got really good, and then they became assassins. So uh, they actually have video games based on, on these guys. They, they became a, a um, band of assassins, and, and a, they didn't actually know. They had a network, but they were disconnected, so they couldn't be rooted out, and um, they had these, they were named after the... Um, the weapon that they had. It was a curved knife. It was easy to conceal. It was small, but they, would, they could take anybody out in the city at any time. 
anybody they didn't like, Roman, unpopular Jewish leader, uh, somebody who they didn't think was doing the right thing or heading in the right direction, they, they could take you out and nobody could do anything about it. So they were on the loose. They carried out assassinations at will. Both Roman and Jewish officials, whoever they didn't like, they terrorized the roadways and villages. Rome couldn't get a handle on them, especially not under Felix's administration. So the general population was unhappy, both with Rome for the occupation and for their inability to do anything about the robbers and the assassins. There was also conflict between the Syrians and the Jews in Caesarea. This was kind of the icing on the cake for, for Felix. Um, the Jews and the Syrians in the area were, were fighting. The Jews said Herod, who was a Jew, built this city, and so, um, so we have a right, we have special rights to be here. And the Syrians were like, no, you're not Roman citizens. You can't, you know, you are second class and... and um, most of the Syrians weren't citizens either, but they were like, no, you can't. We were here before you, and so there was this fight and um, the historical claim to the city, and it devolved into rock throwing, literally rock throwing. There was, okay, they were adults throwing rocks at each other, um, not in the ceremonial execution way either. This was just like passing by, there's a Syrian, you know got out of hand. The two sides fought. The Roman soldiers stopped the fighting, but the two sides found clever ways to keep it going. And riots ensued. So, and, and then one, one last issue. Is there, is there enough chaos going on? In, in? There's one more issue. Herod built a new dining room, an open-air dining room on his palace. And where it was situated, it overlooked the temple courtyard. And the Jews were like, no, you don't get to, to put your non-Jewish eyes on, on the things that are going on in the courtyard. Well, it kind of made sense because they were always causing trouble in the courtyard of the temple. But, but they were like, no, you can't do that. So they built a wall, just almost a freestanding wall that was big and tall, and it blocked that view. When the Romans, well... They can't do that because that also blocks their view, so they can't see stuff going on in the temple, so they said, tear it down, and the Jews said, no, we have permission to keep anything in the temple and not tear it down, and so they ended up going to Caesar, and uh, uh, this was actually under, um, this was the one thing that Felix did well, um, oh, I'm sorry, this this went into the Festus um, world, but Festus said, all right, go talk, to, go talk to Caesar about it. And Caesar said, okay, you can leave it there. And it just caused more trouble, and everybody, so there was this wall, and everybody hates each other, and everybody's upset, and everybody's dying, and rough, rough environment. This was the general feeling of unrest and discontent. Then it was rapidly coming to a head. In the next couple years, they were going to full-on revolt. The Jews were going to say, enough is enough. We would rather be destroyed quickly than have Rome just suck the life out of us for the next 20 years. We'd rather just go out in a blaze of glory. And they did. But not yet. Festus is here now. He's much more reasonable. He's more measured. He's smarter than Felix. And though he was only here for two years, he, he got some things going. 
We don't know why he died. Could have been. I mean, there's plenty of reasons that I just explained that he might have died. So. But he comes into this nasty situation with testy and fired up people, and he's got to calm things down and restore the order. Literally three days after assuming the role, he goes up to rub elbows with the important people at Jerusalem. And the first thing that they complain about in the middle of all this stuff going on is Paul. Think for a second about how significant this Paul issue is to them if that's the first thing that they're talking about. They're hoping to to get Paul to Jerusalem again. They want to try the same plot that they tried before. They're going to ambush him on the way and kill him. And then, of course, it's easy to make it look like it was the Sakari that did it. Verses 3 and verse 9 indicate that it's not usually customary for a, uh, a prisoner or somebody in the custody of Rome to come back to Jerusalem once they're already in the, in the regional capital. So, so it's not proper, and Festus is kind of like, mm, I don't know what you guys are up to, but I don't think so. How about you come with me to Caesarea? He was, he was a smarter guy than Felix was, even though he still wanted to, to do them a favor. He wanted to be in good, good favor, good standing with the political circles. The chief priests and the leading men, these are the same guys that had already tried this once two years ago. They had asked Felix to bring him and uh, bring Paul to Jerusalem where they wanted to investigate further, and the plot got found out, and so Paul... Instead, um, well, he was actually in Jerusalem, but instead of going to where they wanted to, to ambush him, they took him out in the middle of the night, took him to Caesarea. Same guys, although it's a different high priest now, so, but, but these guys, this is something I imagine, I imagine that they sat around in their meetings and just brooded. Like, how is it that this is the first thing that you're going to talk to your new governor about? We got this guy that we need to get rid of. He's been in jail for two years. He's not, how is he threatening them? How is he a problem for them? But these were Sadducees. These were political animals. These were guys that were, that were in this for the power and the influence and the money. And so they're, they're not just governed by, by scripture or the law of Moses. They're not, they're not governed by truth. They just want this guy gone. He's an enemy. So Paul, this, this comes, to, comes to a head in, in Caesarea. Festus brings the leading Jews down to Caesarea. And Paul, when speaking in his own defense, says, no, I don't want to go back to Jerusalem. That's not a good idea. I, I should stand before Caesar, and so therefore I appeal to Caesar. This is a really interesting phrase. During the time of Paul, it's estimated that only 1% to 2% of the population in the Eastern Mediterranean were under, uh, that were under Roman control were citizens. 1% to 2% of the people were citizens. Because non-citizens had no claim to the rights or protections of Rome, citizenship was highly coveted. A Roman citizen had access and was under the protection of Roman law. Citizenship entailed special rights and privileges, including, but not not exclusive to, um, public rights of voting and serving in office, 
private rights of being a party in a lawsuit and of marriage that granted citizenship to one's children and property rights that, uh, that included making a will, transferring property, and entering contracts. None of that was really possible under Roman law if you were not a citizen. Roman citizens at this time were also exempt, and this is where we see um, some of the things with Paul. They were exempt from poll taxes. They were exempt from physical abuse during interrogation. Remember just a couple chapters ago when he's, they're going to they're gonna whip him to find out what's, what the real deal is? And he says, well, I'm a Roman citizen. This is what was going on. He was exempt from that kind of interrogation, uh, exempt from corporal punishment without a trial, and from the most excruciating forms of capital punishment, should that be the sentence, which included crucifixion and exposure to wild beasts. Both of those are not fun ways to die. And if you were a Roman citizen, you could, you could be killed in a more humane way. I don't know, take off your head or something. But They also had the right to be represented by an advocate and to appeal to the emperor in person concerning any capital charges against them. Almost all Jews were non-citizens, and so this was a special situation here with Paul being a Jew and a Roman citizen. At this point in the proceedings, Paul is tired of being a political pawn. He's tired of things, just, he's just tired of being used that way. So he exercises his right that every Roman citizen had, unless you were accused of a first degree murder kind of thing or a rape or a kidnapping, then, then you were hosed. Anyways, so he says the words Caesar appellate. These were the two words that any Roman citizen could utter when he felt that he was getting a raw deal in the local court. And it would escalate up almost straight to the top. Now, Nero is the guy in charge right now, and he, he had policy where he didn't himself hear all these cases, but he had appointed people that would do it on his behalf. So Paul probably didn't get to talk to Nero himself before he died, but to one of the, one of the rulers. But we're not there yet. He's not dead yet. So we see, we see Paul use his citizenship in a few crucial moments during his life. The first one being when he was imprisoned at Philippi with Silas. And, um, and he used his Roman citizenship to get the local magistrates to publicly apologize for holding him without proper trial. Uh, when he was before the Sanhedrin and when, they, and when they plotted to kill him and brought out charges against him, Felix, the governor, protected Paul because he was a Roman citizen. Undoubtedly, he would not have done that because he was not a nice guy, but he himself would have been in hot water if he didn't. And so now, after two years, he exercises his legal right as a citizen to require Festus, the new governor, to send him to Rome to appeal his case before the emperor or his appointed rulers. Perhaps the most powerful legal words in the New Testament times were, I am a Roman citizen. Citizenship was a huge deal. And so you can see Paul in, in many of his letters talks about citizenship, but he talks about citizenship 
not regard, in regards to the Roman Empire, but the kingdom of heaven. We are citizens of heaven, not here. And as one who was a citizen and the recipients of his letters knew that, that meant something different because what else does he say? All I have I consider loss. All my privileges, all my accomplishments are rubbish compared to what we gain in Christ. There's several principles at play in this passage besides the citizenship. Um, the first one that I, I really struggle with, and, and I think I struggle with it because we see it so much in today's culture, and that is, does truth even matter? Not everyone values truth in the same way or to the same degree, meaning that they may claim truth and defend it ferociously when it is in their own interests on the line. However, if the truth, the, the real truth of the matter doesn't benefit them or in fact costs them something, then truth becomes far less of a factor, way less important. Truth becomes then a tool to be used for the right circumstances and on the right project. If, if is anybody here kind of a handyman? You kind of kind of fix things, you build stuff, and you have tools, Patty, yes. Uh-huh. Um, sometimes you find yourself in a situation where you're using a tool that it was not designed for. And everybody's used the back end of a screwdriver as a hammer, right? Like, I mean, we've all... Sorry for hitting a sore subject over here. <laughs> um, we had, I just replaced the vacuum cleaner down here at the church, and, and so I just got a new one of the same kind. I took the old one, it was kind of broken and, and, and defunct. I took it up there, and I was working on it, and I, I didn't have parts for the vacuum. I mean, that would make too much sense. I did have belts. I did have a belt for it, but, but the, the bag... The clip that held the bag on was broken. That's like a custom-molded plastic part. And I was like, I don't have that. But I had some copper wire. And so I, you know, jimmy-rigged this thing together, and it holds the bag up. And, and I was like, oh, man, the bolt on the bottom is gone. I went and found a different bolt, and it, it works. It holds it tight and sticks out a little bit on this side, so don't catch that with your shoe. And, you know, but, but those weren't the, the right things for that, right? Sometimes truth can be subject to how one is feeling. Um, oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. So, but tr if we treat truth like a tool to be used in the right circumstances, then, then it becomes abused and it becomes uh, diminished in its importance. See, truth really should be maybe the work table upon which all projects happen not a tool that we can accidentally misuse or intentionally misuse. Truth may also be subject to how we're feeling. In other words, truth can be bent or manipulated to fit how I feel about it. I don't even look up some headlines. Like everywhere and everybody can just say what they want and put the label truth on it because it's how they feel. 
was not the truth. But up until now, Paul, in this situation, has used his story and his witness and tried to tell plainly what has happened to him and what didn't happen and what he did and what he didn't do. And there were plainly false accusations against him. It says clearly that they could not prove what they were doing, uh, what they were accusing him of. Plainly false accusations they brought against him. And he had, up until this point, fairly successfully argued for his defense. But now it becomes apparent that straightforward truth will not be heard and that his enemies are determined to see his demise no matter the propriety of the method. They're going to see this guy go down. It doesn't matter if he deserves it or not. That's how they feel about it. As a result of this lack of reverence for the truth, Paul sees that his testimony will no longer prolong his life here. (laughs) It's not going to protect him. So there's no hope for justice by this avenue. This is the second thing that that I see at play in this scenario is, is the lack of hope for justice. Paul gave up on the system. Not gonna work. Now, I don't know how he had seen this leading up to this point. We've talked before about how, how Paul might have, um, what his mentality might have been as he entered the temple in the first place, like what he was hoping for, how he was hoping to convert the Jewish leadership, and, and was that God's plan or God's idea? We don't know what was going on in his mind, but I'm pretty certain that he had not imagined this place where people claiming to follow Yahweh were so callously abusing the truth. Gentile rulers, sure. He'd seen that. He had been abused by lots of those guys. But he didn't hold them to the same standards of righteousness as God's own people. He didn't see this one coming. And then again, then again, Jesus kind of suffered a similar fate railroaded by an unfair and dishonest group of power-hungry leaders who stood to lose so much if Jesus were to succeed. Paul knew better than any other outsider how motivated these Jews were. And the secondary things had taken the place of primary importance. Truth didn't matter. Justice was up for grabs. They were just tools for a job that might be used and might not. So he says, I appeal to Caesar. I appeal to Caesar. He decides that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to prolong my life at least a little bit longer. I'm not going to Jerusalem because I know I'll die there. God said I'm going to Rome, so all right, we're going to do that. Now, Paul is a Roman citizen on earth, but he's also a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, and he sees that as his primary citizenship. Philippians 3.20 says, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly await for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But in this moment, he's got to use his Roman citizenship to stay alive a little longer for the benefit of others and for the sake of the gospel. 
the saints, uh, the saints in the church will benefit from him being alive and the lost will hear the gospel because of him. So he's got, he's got at play these, this dual citizenship here. We see it as Paul was coming into Jerusalem several chapters ago, how many times was he warned by other Jews or believers that, hey, if you go to Jerusalem, it's going to be bad for you. It's, it's not going to be good. Chains and, and prison await you and suffering. And what was Paul's response to that? Paul's response was, bring it on. I'm ready to die. I'm ready to, I'll give my life for Jesus and for the gospel. That doesn't scare me. Come on. What, look, at, look at my track record. Look at what I've been through. You think, you think that scares me? So he, had, he had professed that he was not willing to die. He wasn't the guy that was going to be grasping at every last shred of hope just to stay alive and survive. Paul had expressed his willingness a, a number of times, uh, and he had even made it clear in this passage. He says, if I've done something that I should die for, I'm not unwilling to die. I won't argue with that, but you better make a case. Philippians 1 21 says, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So maybe this is going on the other side of the issue. Maybe I want to die, right? But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, uh, and I do not know which to choose. For I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and to be with Christ, for that is much better, this whole debacle that was going on afforded him an opportunity to maybe just get killed and go be with Jesus, right? Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake, Paul says to the Philippians. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. He was willing to die, but Paul wasn't just going to roll over and die for no reason. He, was, he wasn't foolishly looking for trouble so that he could claim persecution and become a martyr. He was not going to just recklessly give his life away for nothing. God had given him his next step, which was, I'm taking you to Rome. And he would bring the gospel to Rome herself and to testify there. So he sees that he should not end it here. And now and decides to live it a little longer for Jesus and for the church. How do we apply this to our lives? I, I suspect that some of these things the Holy Spirit has already been talking to you. As disciples of Jesus, we also live with this dual citizenship. And one is far preferable to the other. But God is using this current situation to work you into your final form. He is using this situation, the world that you live in, the life that you are in, he's using that to work you into your final form. Also, he's using everything that happens and that you offer to draw other people to himself. This is why Paul says, it's better for you if I remain. Now, 
Paul's kind of a special case, but the Holy Spirit lives and works in you as well. Sometimes it feels like it would be easier to just die for Jesus. Now, I'm going to be very careful with the way I say this here. As a martyr, of course, the struggle would be over. We might suffer for a moment, but then glory and heaven. You've heard the saying, dying is easy. It's the living that's hard. Because living for him is really hard. Ted, I'll have you come on up. And let's go ahead and prep for communion as well, because we're going to take communion at the end of this. I don't like catching people off guard. Dying is easy and living is hard. Living for him is really hard. Being a disciple is hard. Letting the Holy Spirit work in you and continually submitting to his will instead of doing what you naturally want is hard. Allowing him to correct and prune and shape you is hard. Allowing him to kill your old self, that's hard. And you're at odds with the world around you. That makes it harder. That's a lot of hard. That's a lot of hard. It kind of makes you relate to what Paul is saying. I'll grab one for Ted. That I, you know, I'd like to go see Jesus. That's way better. Maybe, maybe that's the real hidden motivation behind the prayer that we pray. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come spare me. Come take me out of the miserable situation I'm in. Come quickly, I'm done. Maybe we really mean, I'm coming quickly. <laughs> or take me home quickly. But here's where we need to remember his ultimate purpose for us. I alluded to it a moment ago. His ultimate purpose for you is to make you look like Jesus. And we say this a lot. I'm not talking about facial hair and a robe. I'm talking about the way you relate to the Father. Jesus says, I've come to give you life and life abundantly. I, in other words, I've come to, to draw you into the life that is mine. I want you to be able to share in the eternal peace and joy in my Father's presence forever. And he will make you more like himself to share that life. So everything that is going on, he can use. Every issue in your heart, he can use. We need to remember that this is where he's taken us and this is why we're here and Let's put it this way. Your citizenship there includes the process here. Your citizenship there includes the process here. You don't get to just give up. You're going somewhere. God has a purpose for you. Paul was going to Rome. Even when he was tired... 
even when he was done suffering. Sometimes we just got to take a moment and re-up our commitment. Re-up our commitment to live for him, not just die for him. I just had a picture of um, Peter, the disciple Peter, as, as Jesus is captured in the garden. And just before that, he says, I'll die for you. There's no way they could make me leave you. And then when it wasn't just straight up dying, what happened? It was a lot harder to just live. It was a lot harder to say the right things and speak truth. We need to re-up our commitment to live for him, not just die for him. And the purpose, and, and we repurpose in our hearts to allow him to do what he needs to do in our heart. Why is he changing you? Why is he molding you? Why would he cut something away that shouldn't be there? Why is, why, why is it hard? Why, why does it hurt? Why do I have to submit because he's shaping us. Like Paul, we need to hear from God again. We need to hear our next step. We need to hear what our purpose is. And we need to re-up our commitment to live and not die for Christ. So we come to the communion table today. We come to re-up our allegiance to Jesus and to his will for our lives. We come to remember how we came to be citizens of heaven in the first place and how he made that way for us. The bread symbolizes the body of Christ. His body which bore our iniquities our sins, our sufferings, our sickness, our disease, our mental issues, everything that could be wrong with us and our human bodies, he bore in his body. And he bore it away from us. It was as if we didn't have it anymore because he bore it. He carried it. Lord, we are so grateful for your body which bore our infirmities, our iniquities. And today we, we take the bread remembering that you bore it all away. We take the bread together. represents his blood, his blood which was shed, the blood of the covenant, the new way in which we are to relate to the Father, the new relationship made possible by Jesus' sacrifice. The blood cleanses us from the inside out. Scripture says, white 
as snow. Lord, we're so grateful for your blood. We're so grateful for relationship and that you have drawn us into that place. We remember today as we take the cup that you have made this way for us. And we take the cup together. Today, we re-up our commitment to you. Maybe we've been, we've been feeling like we just want to get out of here. Maybe the trouble has been real and the struggle has been really hard. But today, we purpose in our hearts again to live for you to live out the process. We, we purpose in our hearts to, to go through the process that is included in our citizenship. God, would you use the things? We can do it because we know, we trust you. We know that you'll use it. We know that you'll make us more like you so as to more enjoy and be involved in your presence, Lord draw us into eternal life. Shape our hearts to be better suited there. Lord, we love you, and we're so grateful. In your name, amen. 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 May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace.